tell any secrets of the Mao Mao, this oath will kill me. If I am called in the night and refuse to come, this oath will kill me. If I see anyone steal white man's property, I must help him. I must hide what he gives me and say nothing, or this oath will kill me. The whole system in this country, the economic system, is such that uh, jobs are scarce. Automation is limiting jobs. It's, it's, it's decreasing jobs. And uh, if autom as automation eliminates the job opportunities, legislation will not create job opportunities. All it will do is bring about friction and hostility between the two races. You, you see, there will be no uh, progressive revival if black uh, folks are not deeply involved in it. I will obey all orders of the Mao Mao, or this oath will kill me. Peace, greetings, and salutations, friends, comrades, and enemies. I am your host of the Mao Mao Hour, Pascal Robert, and today we have a great show. It's a bit of a deviation from our normal format because we are trying to come in with a bit of a feminine touch today. Are we living in a post-feminist reality? How is the culture industry shaping the way we see women in the world, and Black women particularly? Here is an excerpt from the book we'll be discussing today by our guest. Youth culture is valorized and associated with liberated individual, individual, individualization, whereby young people, personally empowered to, through educational and economic uplift, can succeed. This focus on individualization feeds a range of self-regulating practices, drawing attention away from social structure and group politics and toward an atomized understanding of individual expression. Furthermore, against this backdrop of the dominant understanding of post-feminism, how does post-feminism, including especially subaltern post-feminism, express itself within the context of Black politics? As a part of racialized discourse, one must grapple with post-feminism's place in the post-civil rights era. All of, the, all of this is discussed in our guest's latest book, Reimagining Black Women, a critique of post-feminist and post-racial melodrama in culture and politics. Our guest tonight is Dr. Nicole Alexander Floyd. Nicole G. Alexander Floyd is professor of political science at Rutgers University, New Brunswick, a lawyer and political scientist. Dr. Alexander Floyd has been actively engaged in a wide range of political and legal issues. Dr. Alexander Floyd has been featured speaker at fora and symposia at, number, at a number of colleges and universities, including Bryn Mawr College, CUNY Graduate Center, Northwestern University, Prairie View A&M, Princeton University, and Syracuse University, among others. A strong advocate for minorities in general and women of color in particular, she co-founded the Association for the Study of Black Women in Politics, an organization dedicated to promoting the development of Black women's and gender studies and supporting the professionalization of Black women 
political scientists. As a legal theorist and activist, she has produced scholarship and provided commentary on some of the cutting edge legal cases of our time, including the important Hopwood case in Texas. Her involvement and leadership around Hopwood led to guest appearances and interviews on the Oprah Winfrey Show and National Public Radio. Ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to introduce you to a friend of the show who has been on this show before, which we talked about the revolutionary nature of church and, and Christianity, Nicole, Dr. Nicole and Alexander Floyd. Dr. Hello. Alexander. Hello, and thank you for that very gracious uh, introduction there. Very, be very, very glad to have you here. Uh, Dr. Alexander Floyd is a longtime friend and fan of This Is Revolution. And uh, also a good friend of the Reeds, Adolf and Torre. Uh, so uh, I don't know if I would call it in the Reed tradition, but she is an appreciator of the Reed tradition. <laughs> so Dr. Alexander Floyd, I really would love to get into your book and the subject, as I will. So let's start with some basic questions. Okay. Now, the title of your book is Reimagining Black Women. The, mm -hmm. the first thing that asks, because, you know, we are dialectical materialists and we try to de-emphasize racial essentialism on our show. Mm -hmm. So my question to you is, why is it particularly black women we're interested in reimagining? Re Aren't all women suffering some certain kind of materialist oppression in this international capitalist economy? Are there certain particular things about the lives of black women or certain classes of black women that require this nuanced analysis? Mm -hmm. that's, that's a great question. Um, I focus in on my work on black women as political subjects uh, in particular and black politics more generally. I would say that um, as uh, you know, other scholars have argued, it's important to you know center uh, black women in terms of uh, doing um, you know political examination. You know, I support race and ethnic politics and the study of um, black politics overall, but this is still something that continues to be um, an understudied area. So to get specifically to your question, uh, there are ways in which black women and black people um, and other other uh, minoritized groups um, get figured uh, in ways that are um, detrimental, that position them um, in ways that focus on them um, as individuals and not as citizen subjects who can make demands on the state. And so in this book, I really try to hone in on the ways in which Black women are really uh, my my focus, of course, is not to produce a essentialized notion of uh, black women. Elsewhere, I've actually been very critical of the idea of a quote unquote sister citizen or uh, a black woman, right? Um, in terms of a, a particular uh, political subject, but to think about uh, black women and their diversity, uh, black women in terms of how um, different public policies impact them, and certainly understanding the importance of racism um, and sexism and class to those experiences are ideal. But part of what I focus in on in my work is the ways in which the, the kind of binary constructions we have of Black women really uh, distorts our, our understanding. So we need to reimagine them to the extent that we need to think outside of these binary ideas about Black women or Black people as being either uh, victors or villains either abject subjects or um, you know, folks who are basically 
prototypes, super minorities, positioning themselves to basically be deserving of um, their participating in society and being able to make demands on the public good. Well, you know, what's interesting about that is that the way we frame our analysis of this revolution is that we generally, and I'm sure you're familiar with this kind of analysis, you know what dialectical materialism is or kind of, mm -hmm. you know, nouveau Marxist analysis. Mm -hmm. Our position would be th is that the harm from all of the realities that you talk about are a classed harm even within the context of Black people in that mm -hmm. the people who suffer these harms disproportionately are poor and working class Black people. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes, Black uh, elites or upper middle class Black people use the illusions of the suffering of their, uh, you know, poor and lesser brethren and sisters to negotiate positions in the power structure that basically mm -hmm. gives them a role as a broker or positions mm -hmm. them as a kind of, uh, you know, tour guide of Black and suffering. Uh, middle manager. Middle manager, exactly. <laughs> while, while they're, you know, going to the oh, vineyard, wow. you know, sipping mint julep or whatever else every summer, you know, and they're mm -hmm. living in their 500000 to a million dollar mm -hmm. house, acting like, you know, oh, Black Lives Matter, when the chances of their sons or daughters getting shot by a cop are like something like 15 to 20 times lower than mm -hmm. a poor Black person mm -hmm. who might be a high school mm -hmm. cop. So mm -hmm. within the context of your analysis, of addressing the reimagining of black women. Mm -hmm. And I can under, if you made the analysis about poor and working class black women, I'd be mm -hmm. right on your page. But I believe in the concept that there are certain black women who are the class enemies of those poor and working class black women, and there's no mm -hmm. need to empathize with their position. What are your thoughts on that? Does that complicate your analysis at all? Or do you think it's an, it's an unnecessary nuance? Uh, I wouldn't call it an unnecessary nuance. I would say that, um, you know, part of what I, I do talk about is the fact that, you know, politics is turbulent, right? It's not something that, um, you know, is always uh, so simple to discern. But what I'm getting at is exactly um, the problem that people have with using a kind of Monahan-esque analysis, you know, as some kind of urtext for understanding all of what um, impacts um, you know, black people. And so um, the idea of liminality and this book very well could have been called liminal subjects as opposed to, you know, reimagining black women. I want to but, ask you to define that a little bit down the right. So, okay, well, uh, I, I have to do it here a little bit in order to answer your question. Okay. Because what, what I'm really getting at are the ways in part connects to what you're saying are the ways in which, you know, we, we see, um, you know, either uh, you know, black people as being uh, abject and, and not thinking about the ways in which um, capitalism or st structural inequality shapes people's life chances, but really thinking about how their individual choices, right? People are poor because, uh, you know, they haven't learned how to uh, advance themselves in uh, a society that is uh, really open, and you know, we do know that people, you know, the idea of, of pulling yourself up by, by your bootstraps is a myth, part of a myth of meritocracy. But the the kind of um, way in which we have focused in on um, uh, poor people in general, including Black people, as basically the source of their own poverty, mm -hmm. right? And the idea that when we see people as as abject, uh, we other than we see them 
as unworthy. We see them as um, you know, being responsible for their own life conditions, including their material conditions, especially their material conditions. And so that's really um, a big part of the idea that I'm critiquing in this book. And part of part of what goes along with that is the idea that if you were just like uh, these other black people, if you were just like um, you know black people who get it, who are um, you know prototypes of what success looks like, who are the exact opposite of what stereotypes uh, are like, who are um, as a uh, you know, uh, the current president once said they're clean, <laughs> like uh, what he said about President Obama at one point, he's so clean, right? People who, you know, seem to fit a particular mode of engaging um, society, who conform to um, prototypical understandings of race, who position themselves as super minorities, Right, who position themselves to be seen as the exact ob object of uh, the black abject. Um, so that's part of what it is that I find problematic, actually. And so when we step in, when we understand the way in which those unhelpful binary oppositions really operate, and there are people who who do support them. And President Obama is one of the people in my book that, of course, I focus in on. Um, uh, you know that 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 becomes that becomes an issue. I don't think that we can look at um, you know we can we can think about the subject position of um, anyone and understand or think okay this person is uh, a black person quote unquote and then we know everything there is to know about them that yeah absolutely not ideology is real and there are people who are very much uh, into reformist agendas that are not interested in um, undermining uh, capitalism, who don't support strikes, who don't support um, health healthcare for all, who do not, absolutely do not support uh, expansion of um, you know our social social um, safety net. Uh, they just want to have you know take their place within an already existing position. So it is critical that we understand the impact of ideology. And one of the things that your remark reminded me of um, was especially the one of the legacies, not only of, of the Black Power movement of the mid 20th century, but in a particular way, um, the assumption that uh, to be authentically Black means to be poor or working class, right? And other scholars like Juanima Lubiano have pointed out uh, the problems of that, right? The way in which people want to kind of draw attention away from, um, you know, their otherwise privileged positioning in terms of in terms of class. That's a very real. I, I, I absolutely agree with the idea that um, at times race is deployed as a way to flatten our understanding of of serious class um, differences and also. Um, you know, to, to really avoid talking about any of the, the complexity that we can get into in terms of thinking about Black communities. Well, the thing is, though, from, from uh, our perspective at This is Revolution, the goal of focusing on the conditions of the poor and working class Black people is not because we define them as authentically Black. We don't believe in Black authenticity mm -hmm. on this show. We think that in and of itself is an authentic, is an essentialized mm -hmm. notion. The purpose of our focus on the poor and working class Black people is because they are 
disproportionately re reduced to the reserve army of labor because that's just necess a necessary function of capitalism is to disproportionately keep black mm -hmm. people of that class. And since our job is to not only criticize or critique capitalism, but to nullify it and bring back a more equitable economic solution, mm -hmm. one of the reasons why Jason and I concentrate on the material condition of poor and working class black people is not because we have a fetish obsession with black folk as black folk, because we realize that in order to neutralize the evils of capitalism, these people are used particularly because of, you know, the, you mm -hmm. know, the way they look. And it's easier mm -hmm. to reduce them to surplus labor, that that process must be neutralized with a class mm -hmm. politics. Because as we know, there are many Black people who are more elite or pedigreed, professional managerial class, mm -hmm. if you will, mm -hmm. who wouldn't mm -hmm. give a damn mm -hmm. because they believe that as long as capitalism lets them succeed mm -hmm. and everything will be fine. And what they don't realize is that what that means, mm -hmm. the ideal notion for a black capitalist is that 14% of the ruling class will be black, 14% mm -hmm. of the middle class will be black, and 14% of the poor will be black. Sounds equitable, but this is the problem. Mm -hmm. The ruling class, let's say the ruling class is only, always going to be the tiniest per, uh, uh, number of people. So let's say it's 10 people. So that means you have 1.4 person that is black that is in mm -hmm. the ruling class. Let's say the middle class is a thousand people. So what does that mean? That you have 114 uh, black people of a thousand mm -hmm. that are middle mm -hmm. class. Now you, we know that the poor are always going to be much more. So let's mm -hmm. say the poor are a hundred thousand people. What that means is that you're still going to have what? 14,000 black people who are poor. Mm -hmm. So in a capitalist paradigm, even if we have equity and it's Black, it's 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 mm -hmm. and we destroy racism. All it does is still put the majority of black people in poverty. Mm -hmm. Well, we're we're not just in disagreement uh, fundamentally, right? In terms of um, in terms of this, you know, there are um, uh, you know there's a there's a critical issue in terms of what is happening uh, materially, and what my book gets at are the the ways in which uh, narratives and themes uh, and frameworks and even fantasies basically work to undermine uh, social action and social justice directed at 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 dealing with um, material questions. And so when you have someone like a Barack Obama, uh, we understand his rise and his popularity in part because um, you know, he he is, um, you know, a way in which, you know, you can we can have um, uh, a decoy, if you will. Right. To, uh, you know, borrow from Zila Eisenstein. She talked about sexual decoys. Um, but, you know, Street's he's a, man. I call him Wall Street's mm -hmm. Manchurian candidate, actually. But yeah, exactly. And so you know, even in um, their post presidential run, um, Michelle Obama and her you know becoming um, book you know, and their, their PR around it, part of what um, they both presented was the idea that she was successful. Um, she was able to, you know, get to the point where she is in life because she came from a two family, um, a two parent family, right? This I, I idealized notion of a family that more and more people um, you know, fall short of actually attending. We know what's happened to um, what people think about in terms of um, marriage in many respects. 
but you know, in their conversations, you know, Barack Obama has talked about, well, you know, this is, you know, he came from a broken home and this was so the way that he talks about it really, again, underscores um, the gender component. Now, the, the piece that connects with um, uh, the material question is that those kinds of arguments, as we know, have been um, rehashed, uh, redeveloped, redeployed to actually take our attention. And this is what I, I talk about in the book, the way that it, it takes our attention off of those larger questions, right? And, and centers it into the issue of the self. And that that's, so, so basically, you know, these um, ideas about post-feminism and post-racial politics, they're used to basically uh, take our eyes off of those uh, larger questions around structural change and place it on the idea of the self. If you have a problem, you, you don't need to be involved in you know, political action and organizing about it. You just you need to buy something. You well, need to you need to consume some products. You need to be uh, in a heterosexual marital union. You need to you know be a, a a good Democrat vote and support you know everybody that you see in office. And I'm not a, I'm not against. I mean, obviously, uh, to support a variety of um, you know people, progressive people, ideally, you know. But part part of what um, people get can get hung up on and this is connected to uh, the idea of the ideas that I talk about in my book are a very superficial um, form of liberal uh, politics and representation where we just want to see more people of color in office or more women in office and we're not thinking about um, who are these people what's the agenda that they're pushing what interests whose interests are they serving where are the exact public policies that they they want to want to present where are they so we can't make those kinds of easy assumptions um you know i, I start off one of my chapters talking about um conversations about bonnie watson coleman right when she was first running for congress people were saying oh it'll be the first time that um we have a black woman representing new jersey well um you know, we also had a conservative, you know, who was uh, Mia Love going to be the first person representing black women representing Utah. But what does that mean? You you can't, uh, you know, have a very superficial understanding of of what representation means descriptively and not understand what substantive representation uh, looks like. And um, so I think that what I'm arguing in the book is actually um, consonant with what what you're describing. Excellent. And I've, I've seen that in the way you particularly integrate, you integrate class in your analysis. Mm-hmm. A, more, a more kind of pedestrian question that I should have asked first, but I think it's very important. What motivated you to write this book? What motivated me to write this book? Well, I was looking for a second book project, and I had a, a range of things that I wanted to talk about. And I was very upset by, um, and I talk about this in the intro, right? the way I thought some some things were really undermining my work in the classroom. And more specifically, at the time, there was a hot new show out called Grey's Anatomy. I saw that. And I had some, yeah. So I had some students who wanted to use Grey's Anatomy. I had a project where they had to take ideas that we learned in class and apply them, you know, to you know, something in pop culture. I had a long list, but they didn't want anything on that long list. They said, look, <laughs> I'll do it. I haven't seen the show you give me some episodes and then so I can actually grade your paper. And they were like, oh, you'll love it. It's multicultural. There are lots of women on it and all this kind of stuff. Um, but when I saw it, I saw something very different than what my students saw. 
right? There was a very um, superficial idea of multiculturalism and representation, uh, what I others would call a doomy, uh, a doomy feminism, where feminism was read simply as having um, license to, to have sex whenever you want it, however you want it. Um, and let me just say that I'm not, um, certainly not being judgmental by people and their sexual choices, but I'm saying that how, how um, sexism was represented and, and ideas about um, gender liberation were represented had nothing to do with the real world politics and the serious issues that people can face in the workplace in terms of access to, to health care, in terms of what people actually face when they try to break into those professions uh, like surgery. Uh, there are real situations with discrimination and um, outgroup activity that happens in those spaces as we know. None of that happens, none of it on, on Grey's Anatomy. And um, it was a very superficial display of multiculturalism and a focus again on feelings uh, in terms of um, you know, what, what encompassed the whole scope of play. And what's interesting too, is that all of the people, particularly in the early seasons came from what people would call broken homes that would basically reconstitute family in the workplace. Uh, and you know, so again, all of those, somebody said, yes, uh, I don't know that that got got dang Moynihan. Yes, even you know the the subtext right of um of that show you know really played out you know, within the, the context of that. And so I was, I was angry. I, I was mad. <laughs> I was mad about that. And then I also watched um, Crash. And what else? What else rounded it out? And then the Obama campaign. There was another movie too that just I'm like, you know what? To, I always said, don't get mad, get published. And so I, I had in mind to write one article just to kind of get this out my system. <laughs> and then a book happened. That's an amazing story, quite honestly. Well, I want to get back to Moynihan. I've always realized, right, because people really don't, one of the problems we have in the, uh, we call, here on uh, This is Revolution podcast, we call the uh, 50-year-plus counter-revolution, which is basically everything after 1968 <laughs> The theory is of the 60, 50 year plus counter revolution is that all of American politics after 68 is a counter revolution against the achievements of the civil rights, this Cold War civil rights coalition, if you, if you understand what I mean, right? And I, I don't think it's difficult for you as a political scientist and lawyer to understand at all the nature of that. You probably forgot more about that than I had. But the point I'm trying to convey to you is that when you read the actual statistics of black life in mm -hmm. Jim Crow, one of the most ridiculous uh, canards of these, uh, what do I, how should I pronounce this? Nig cells that we have on the internet, these men's rights, these, uh, these kind of black men who are trying to blame everything on black women. Oh, they have baby, they, they got babies out of wedlock. Like, all of this like more than a half, mm -hmm. it's, it's the mm -hmm. welfare that destroyed the black family. And when the mm -hmm. black family, and I always tell these, these morons, I said, in 1959, when we had a much lower rate of uh, single black mothers in the black community that we had now, I think in 1959, it was actually less than 25%. The poverty, the percentage of black people in America that lived below the poverty line was over 55%. Mm -hmm. Today, when we have this epidemic of uh, single parent mamas, the, the percentage of black people below the poverty line is less than 20%. So 
So where is the materialist analysis? Oh, it's the sick baby mamas that's causing the poverty. What are you talking about? It was better on the in my common soul voice. It was better before integration. Because that dumb bastard <laughs> is considered a hero, hero to these morons. And they're like, how much do you think the Hoover Institute pays that moron to say these things? Which are nonsensical. Um, you know, know and, and I would actually well to be sure, and I would I would actually encourage people to actually read the morning high hand report if they have not. Because um, in it, Daniel Patrick Moynihan says very directly, now that, uh, of course, he uses the word Negroes, right? Now that Black people have gotten um, legal equality, right, they're going to basically want substantive equality or economic equality. And so he specifically has in mind, right, the next step in, in, in his view in terms of what um, people would be pushing for. And so he, he he actually literally presents an alternative to thinking about that. Well, but but poverty, you know, it, it's not about anything having to do with how the, the economy is actually structured. Um, it, it has to do with the microstructure of the family. And so no. it's a it's a direct attack. Right. You know, well, he, he does it very directly. Well, it's a consequence of the fact that he's a uh, um, He's a cultural pluralist, which is very a very right wing uh, you know, mm -hmm. concept, which comes out of the University of Chicago School of Analyzing Americans based on their different cultures. All the Italians, well, you know, like sold the imbecile said, well, the Italians could do it and the Jews could do it. How come, you know, well, the Italians didn't have 65% of their labor picking cotton until mm -hmm. 1965. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, he, and it's also about his own kind of Hell's Kitchen. <laughs> background, you know, I think. But, fact, you know, he, he's, a, he's a GI Bill beneficiary. The government is what made his life possible. He he went down uh, believing that he was just prescient, although even at the end of his life, he thought that some of the criticism um, that people, you know, had about uh, the so-called Black underclass was um, was off. But I, I would say that, you know, part of what, um, you know, part of what has uh, Happen and part of part of how we under, can understand how so many people were taken aback by, uh, you know, something like a Trump and and the kind of support that he has is because people people drank the Kool Aid of post feminism and post racial politics that somehow we were um, that there there weren't any kinds of issues that we needed to address in terms of racism, sexism, and definitely not in terms of um, of questions of class and that uh, the sky was the limit and you know look at all the diversity that we have. And so post-feminism and post-racial um, narratives are basically fantasies, right? But they circulate at the same time and compete for attention among a lot of different um, ways of understanding and seeing, seeing the world. But it has been really the kind of uh, something that has proliferated and has dominated our understanding and um and our and our thinking about things and so to it, it's manifested at times as um uh you know been there done that kind of sentiment you know that uh you know anything that's a problem is something that uh, basically has occurred in the past uh, it's also as you pointed out uh you know, a kind of a new a revival a new traditionalism where people are pushing for a world that they've never ever had Right, or thinking about you know these you know kind of patriarchal ideas about uh, achievement, about uh, gaining access to uh, marriage, 
or having a, additional out of the wounded masculinity, trying to have as many women in, in their lives as possible or, or doing or saying things that denigrate, uh, denigrate women in general. Uh, so all of those things are really tied, you know, tied together. And so the Moynihan Report, many people who try to understand um, the origins of things will point to the, you know, the failure of the passage of the ERA or all kinds of other stuff. But really, you know, it, 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 it dates back to the Moynihan Report. McSteamy and McDreamy are, are, are McMulty-Culty. Absolutely, Mark Owen. <laughs> Absolutely. Don't, don't look at the chat. Don't, don't, do don't look at the chat. Sorry. It's just <laughs> there. You know, I mean, I'm used to doing that in the classroom when I'm on Zoom. So, okay, I won't do it. <laughs> no, I'm being facetious. We have a great, we are, all, these are our patrons. So look at the chat because they pay to be here. So, you know, I can't tell. Okay. Them. Don't look at their comments. Okay. But, um, okay, I mean, just, let's define some terms, to, you know, because you sure. said something that's very important, which is a major theme in your book. Can you define post-feminism for our, for our viewers? Sure. Uh, post-feminism. Uh, again, is is the idea that what well, is basically any fantasy narrative or idea that suggests that we don't need social change uh, around questions of gender, right? Somebody said, ha 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 ha. Yeah, but uh, you know, people actually have bought into that. It also um, can manifest as a push for traditionalism, and so we have, and, and somebody could say, well, how could anybody think that we don't need you know, we haven't needed, um, you know, there's no need for feminism or that people don't have problems with, with sexism. Well, some people actually did buy into and, and do buy into that notion. They've been disabused of that. I mean, that's why some for some people, um, the overturning of Roe is a shock, even though for decades, uh, there have been forces, very powerful and well-financed forces working, to, as we know, to man manipulate the court, develop the Federalist Society, and literally position uh, people in Supreme Courts and throughout the country in terms of, um, what's happening in, in uh, our state legislatures to, to, to make this happen. Well, right? we know what that's that. about. It's because America's well, but, but population the, decline. It's, that's all. It's a really, the, these men don't care about the woman's body. It's about the fact that they want to keep, their population is dying and decreasing all over the Western world. And well, they need people to have babies. And, and in particular, there are more um, black and brown people, right? Demographically. Right. About the browning of yeah. America as well. Yeah. yeah. Fear of white genetic survival. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you know that. So in a in a in a nutshell, that's what post-feminism is. It's a it's a tricky term because it's what's developed in the literature. Because like who? How are we post anything? How are we post-feminism? It's basically if you think of it as a wish of being uh, post-feminist or a wish a wish of being uh, beyond racism, then this would would be uh, you know kind of more accurate or wished and, and, and really those questions, the narratives really, um, all of it deflects from an attention to dealing with uh, class me, questions. Let me respond to that. Let me tell you what the, uh, the because I, I know you don't do the, uh, the, 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 the YouTube commentators who are talking about gender issues, particularly the black, because mm -hmm. if you didn't know, mm -hmm. there's a massive racial, intra-racial gender war on social media mm -hmm. between uh, uh -huh. black men and black women. We we, we may yes. talk about that. I don't want to depress you. Uh -huh. But but um I, I'm 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 not unaware. I mean I don't spend hours watching it, you know, in my spare time, but you know, I'm I'm familiar with um the general outlines of this. And of course this has just moved over into another medium, right? In my first book I talked I talked about 
you know, the hairs, Nathan and Julia hair and Jawanza Kunjufu and all of that crowd. This is basically, you know, another iteration of this for a new generation and in a new context. Right. But what are, what are your what are the things that that stand out in your mind about it? Um, basically, there has been no explanation to particularly America about what has caused the fracture of Black life in America. And people don't realize mm -hmm. it's a very simple conundrum in that the period of time in which Black people finally got some level of rights, i.e. the 60s, is on the precipice of bringing forth neoliberalism. So Black people, everyone else is getting the 50s, they're getting the New Deal, they're getting everything. And what happens is that in the 60s, Black people start fe feeling deindustrialization because people don't realize mm -hmm. there was a second wave of a great migration that started mm -hmm. in the actually uh, 50s and, and even going into the 60s. And the deindustrialization, lack of jobs in the inner cities is what leads to a lot of those urban rebe rebellions at some point. And the consequence of those jobs disappearing is an increase in crime and the increase in incarceration. Start mass incarceration even started before Nixon. It was based on the fact that mm -hmm. a lack mm -hmm. of economic opportunity started to cause an increased rates of incarceration for black males because the state <laughs> was not interested in investing other social solutions for their poverty because they needed they they needed a res increased reserve army of labor to place the surplus labor because we were moving into the Milton Friedman-esque neoliberal era with the advent of mm -hmm. Nixon because we had the Nixon shock we had 68 all these other phenomena right mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. this is what actually starts causing the actual breakup of the black family is because deindustrialization robs inner city black men of decent union jobs because there's a period of time, particularly mm -hmm. areas for like a five to 10 year period, a lot of black men have good union jobs in cities like mm -hmm. Detroit and the Midwest, but deindustrialization would take them out mm -hmm. those mm -hmm. jobs in the suburbs in the proximity mm -hmm. to those cities. And as a result, it lost wages means, you know, I'm, you're, mm -hmm. you're escape out, not get married, not pay child support, and it leads to an increase of single mothers. And that metastasizes and gets worse and worse after the 70s come mm -hmm. in with, with mm -hmm. mm -hmm. heroin and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. the fracture of the black family is like, like, oh, it's the welfare. It was the welfare. Because mm -hmm. guess what? It started happening before the great society. All right? But it's a very seductive, it's a very seductive idea because when you have um, you know, social norms that are based on uh, what Moynihan called a patrifocal society, but also, you know, when you hit uh, a kind of cultural context where people are um, operating and pushing ideas about wounded masculinity, right? That the you're, you're I think absolutely right in terms of the the uh, material transitions of the society from you know um, you know different types of you know, factory production to service economies and what's happening now even more in terms of information, the information age and the way that it's advanced. At the same time, how that gets interpreted, somebody said that, you know, um, gender war is a proxy for class war. Uh, to a certain extent, that's true. I, I like to think of it in terms of how, um, you know, ideology gets uh, deployed in terms of understanding uh, the root causes of things and um, how those those narratives function not only in terms of 
uh, formal politics in terms of elections, but also how it happens um, in popular culture. Those, you know, those different domains uh, co-constitute each other. They're connected in a very intimate way. Well, let me let me continue with my to advance my position. Yeah, and the and the, the welfare argument implies that people are lazy and and irresponsible children, right? And that's that's part of what when I talk about liminal subjects, it's and and how uh, that's a problem. It's because people again understand. Uh, black people as be, being betwixt and between kind of these polarities of either being, um, you know, abject, unworthy, um, uh, immoral, or um, respectable, upstanding, uh, prototypical super minorities, and um, and and that's you know that that's also a kind of um, a framing that uh, you know takes our you know, takes our eyes off of um, where they sh should be analytically. And so that's why for me, that's, that's part of, that's part of ground zero. That's part of ground zero. Well, another phenomenon I think is important that continues is how do we get from the period of the sixties to today, where we have what is, mm -hmm. what I believe is a crisis of masculinity. What happens is mm -hmm. that with the advent of second wave feminism, we see that as also as a result of the consequence of a lot of these industrial jobs being lost, women don't go to work because like, oh, I can get a job now. I don't need a man. They go into work because the husband's income is not enough to pay the bills because the industrial jobs are leaving. So women are working now that their their ability to have material resources causes causes tensions in not only black households but white households you start to see an increase in divorce and as a result because young men are not having contact with fathers and they believe that somehow the the which and there might be a correlation i don't deny that the lack of presence of a father because a young man gets 13 14 years old he might start to try to challenge his mom so it doesn't have to be a dad it could be a grandfather it could be an uncle but i do believe that young men need to have some masculine presence and it doesn't have to be abusive just to somehow kind of calm them down in their you know progressing years but when deindustrialization makes that impossible it starts to cause generations of men who kind of are alienated from senses of masculinity and when we have increases of crime let's not forget popular music i.e hip-hop that starts to create very perverted notions of masculinity mm -hmm. that make a metaphor for crime and authenticity and going also with you know the disco era we have the sexual revolution and we have all of these pop cultural industry created manifestations that don't have people you know studying phenom like they were during black power not that mm -hmm. we should romanticize that era <laughs> and end up saying i'm either going to dance or shoot up some heroin or listen to some hip-hop or get paid so there's no actual analysis or actually retrospective understanding of mm -hmm. what's causing the materiality to mm -hmm. give people the time to do that. And the reason that is, is that there's no really good jobs for working class people because they're slowly eviscerating. And this quote unquote crisis of masculinity, it isn't a crisis of masculinity, it's because these fools don't realize the ideal patriarchal man that we had in America, that only existed during the New Deal period. It was the government mm -hmm. that was mm -hmm. bankrolling that, you know, I, Ozzy and Harriet crap. That, why do you think all these father those best TV shows are in the 50s? Ask go oh, see that, back in 19th, 19th century and early 20th history and talk about women are not working. Mm -hmm. Women are working their asses off because it's well, a hard I'm, life. You know? So what I'm do you a, understand? 
I'm going to do a shameless plug for my first book <laughs> called Gender, Race, and Nationalism in Contemporary Black po Politics that talks about the Black male crisis and, black male, and specifically Black male crisis ideology um, in popular culture and also in public policy. I'm just going to put this right here. I'm going to try to yeah, get a link need to, to read that. that. <laughs> read, read that. And also, Willie Leggett has a really great piece on Black male crisis ideology in an edited volume by um, Adolf Reed Jr. I think I came out in like 99. But I'm glad that you mentioned um, this this question about um, Black male crisis ideology. I would say that you know one of one of the things that I would add is that uh, of course Black women have always had a higher workforce participation rate than other women, and the the narrative around women coming into the workforce is really you know you know in the, in the mid 20th century is really uh, about middle class white women. Um, I would also add that, uh, you know, one of the differences, you know, I'm highly I'm critical in some cases of Black cultural nationalism, especially, but um, other forms of nationalism, but these, the Black Panthers did have a critique of capitalism in some measure. That's dropped out of contemporary forms of nationalism. In one chapter of my book, I talk about Bill Cosby. And of course, we know his pound cake speech that he gave on the 50th anniversary of Brown, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, people somehow saw that as, you know, just the, you know, uh, uh, the, something that they couldn't understand. You know, otherwise he was a great guy. He had a great TV program, but really, they, you know, how could he, you know, you know, allegedly rape over um, 50 plus women? But really, it all is. Uh, two sides of the same coin, because in his representation on his famous uh, Cosby show, he was essentially projecting himself on one part of that, you know, that liminal subjects binary, right? Thinking about himself as some kind of super minority um, and his whole, that whole family as an antidote, right? To um, who we think about as the, the black poor. The second piece of that, you know, the, for for Cosby, I argue what he does. He always presented himself as a kind of, um, you know, uh, you know, a kind of male, a male figure that could that a symbolic black father is what I talk about. Mm -hmm. America's know, in, in, dad. America's dad, and and and, and um, Obama right, serves that function as a symbolic black father. But the the side of that, you know, his 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 wounded masculinity, and of course his. Um, alienation and disaffection from his father, who he, um, you know, saw as a problem, saw, suffered from alcoholism, felt wasn't a part of his life. You know, part of, the, part of his uh, predatory behavior towards uh, women really has to do with uh, his trying to, um, you know, create himself as someone who is uh, a powerful uh, male figure uh, in, his, in in that way to be able to dominate. And really I talk about in terms of a, a sadomasochistic um, paradigm, right? It's very it's sadistic, you know, uh, trying to have and exert pop power over someone else. And I think it also explains why, aside from the fact that he did, he was trying not to get caught, you know, he did a, a, a comedy show called Spanish Fly, mm -hmm. uh, which you can still buy the recording of. But, you know, as someone who, was raping raping people who were uh, unconscious. He got to feel total power and total domination uh, in that context. So it's a really uh, I talk about it in terms of a a, um, a pair version or uh, you know a way in which 
um, a very destructive idea of 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 manhood is enacted, but they're really two sides of the same coin. You know, the, the idea um, of him being some kind of model, um, symbolic, black symbolic father. I'd like to play off of that because let me write, and I, I've said this on this, on all oh, This Is Revolution podcast before. I hated the Cosby Show when I was growing up, and I'll tell you why. The Cosby Show was an innately reactionary show for anyone who was growing up in New York City in the 80s. Because you had this upper middle class black family living in New York City in Brooklyn, in Shangri-La, as me, who was a young teenager, teenager young adult in the mm -hmm. 60s, that's the peak of racial tension mm -hmm. in New York right. in my life. You had Eleanor that's Bumper, right. you had um, Yusef Hawkins, you had um, Bernard Getz. Louima. Yeah, Abner Louima. Abner Louima. All in my teenage and young adult years. I used to be furious at the notion this show went on for years. They don't even talk about racial in uh, incidents That's right. going on in New York That's City. Right. And what's, what's most important to me about the Cosby show, I love the Cosby show. This fool had this show on during the Reagan mm -hmm. 80s. That's not accidental. Mm -hmm. It was a completely mm -hmm. reactionary show. That's Absolutely. why, I mean, as bad as Good Times was, it was much, at least Good Times talked about problems in the Carter <laughs> administration. That's right. But that, but that is what post-politics post, uh, does, right? It, it, it operates on, um, you know, an assumption that it's absolutely reactionary at its core. It operates on the this you know I, pie in the sky idea that we don't have problems that need to be fixed. You're the issue, and if you could just work hard, if you can just uh, play by the rules, if you can just have the right family, if you can go to the right schools, if you can do X, Y, and Z, because we all know we have an equal playing field now, then you can be like this 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 Cosby Show um, representation. So it, it in some ways it's it's a quintessential quintessential post politics and, and post um, racial show. And people think, well, but it's it but it has black people. But it's not just the idea, it's the idea that uh, uh, racism doesn't matter, inequality, class inequality doesn't matter. You can live the American dream. You just have to play you just have to play by the book. No, it's and, totally um, in line with where the black elite and the black middle class in America was in the eighties. Do you remember the nineteen eighty seven cover of Ebony magazine with the black man with a suit and a black woman in the business dresses? The new black middle class. Are you in or mm -hmm. are you out? This is literally during the crack epidemic. Mm -hmm. So this is mm -hmm. the this is the message we were getting from the black professional managerial class who was basically living in Shangri-La off all this Reagan uh, neoliberal uh, uh, pump and dump into the into the capitalist economy. And like we have a right. I remember the eighties. I was in college, and a lot of people they I love well, the eighties. A lot of us remember the eighties. <laughs> I'm not, we, trying, to date, I'm not we, trying to date We, we survived the age. Oh, I have no problems. Um, I'm grateful to be here. I'm happy with my age. Um, we survived the 80s. Yeah. Yeah. It was it was a hot mess. You know, so. The 80s, inspired, the 80s and beyond inspired me to become a political scientist. I wanted to do something about the madness. No, yeah. I understand completely. And, you know, living in Jamaica, Queens, in a kind of middle class household and neighborhood, you know, it, you know, a lot of people loved the 80s. I pledged in the 80s. And, you know, it felt good to be like, you know, oh, we're having a great time and whatnot. But without an analysis of the fact that it was grounding poor and working core black mm -hmm. folk and white folk to powder in certain places. Mm -hmm. I would also argue that Bill Clinton did neo double down on neoliberalism in a way in a way that cr crushed everyone. Oh, absolutely. Bill and after got the, the crime bill. I mean, he just he was a he was a vicious disaster. It's a tricky bill is is um is a hazard <laughs> to us to us all 
And, you know, he, he has an ignominious history. He was part of the Democrat leadership council that, that right. moved the Democrats further to the right. Um, you know, and, and it, it's, it's, you know, more than an embarrassment that, uh, you know, it's, it was actually cruel and uh, self-serving and, and harmful intentionally to racial, so many people. Know. As, as you know, he, he had two. He had two black women at his side when he signed uh, welfare reform. Mm-hmm. Yep, yeah. He also during the election when he not get nominated to the to the Democratic uh, uh, position, he uh, had Ricky Ray Rector, a, a, a almost lobotomized black man uh, mm-hmm. killed. Yeah, but the thing is though, yeah. as you know, because I say you forgot more about black politics than probably I'll ever know, is that the reason he did the DLC is you probably remember because I might be reminded you is that that the Democratic Con- National Convention, DNC, I should say, they did a poll in '84, and they did a poll particularly of white folk, and they found that they had been losing the white poor and working class. Mm-hmm. to Reagan because they had the image of the Democratic Party is that they were being too lenient policy-wise with Black people. So they got paranoid because they were losing working-class whites, the Reagan Democrats, what they would call them. And they were like, mm-hmm. we got to find... One of the impetuses for the DLC and the pivot to the right is because they were literally afraid of losing working-class whites. So they said, yo, listen, we can't survive without the working class whites, because the Democratic Party for many years was a party of working class whites. So listen, basically they're like, yeah, we So gotta- you're not you're not you're not saying they had no choice, right? No, exactly, because they had the New Deal in the in the fifties. What I'm mm-hmm. saying is no, I'm not mm-hmm. saying they had no point. What I'm saying is they intentionally intentionally chose, instead of negotiating a middle way to deal with this, to ground poor and working class black people mm-hmm. to Absolutely. powder. Absolutely. 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 There's no question about it. And, um, you know, and really it's in, and set the stage in so many ways for Obama. Uh, where we are right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. No, absolutely. We've had, that's why I say the 30 years of Democratic Party, 32 years of Democratic Party reign for black and minori- minoritized communities have been disasters for them in this country. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not getting into Biden yet, but in, ter- in terms of Obama, Obama's <laughs> two terms and Clinton's two terms, they were horrific, man. Horrific. Mm-hmm. That's why I really get contemptuous when I hear uh, certain, you know, uh, liberal black women on Twitter. I don't want to name names. They're like, oh, black men are voting for Republicans at higher rates because black men got least from Democrats than anyone else in the black community, gender-wise, except poor white black women who got cut from welfare and also increased in mass incarceration as well. In terms of, well, I think it's important. Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. Let me cut you off. Um, now, I was just going to say that I think it's important to underscore that the the vast majority of black men uh, do not vote for Trump, did not exactly. vote for Trump. Exactly. Um, and and I, I think that it's a, a you know empirical question, right? To to think through what the 12 percent uh, you know in the the last election uh, means. I think part of it has to do with um, an attachment to machismo. Uh, another part of it has to do with religion, um, and um, you know the, the kind of cultivation of, of in particular, megachurch associate associations. Um, you know, with Paula White and others. Can I give you a little statistic? Uh, you know, so it's something that's complicated. Can I give you a little stat? Black men have mm-hmm. always had double-digit voter participation for the Republican Party for years. It was not, I mean, Trump got a little higher. It's not shocking. 
but it's still, you know, it it's still, you know, it it's it's still something that um, you know, people find concerning, but I think the bigger question is, you know, what do we do <laughs> in terms of thinking about uh, you know, having a kind of um you know, a politics that doesn't focus on just every four years and what's happening with um, two parties. You know, there, you know, it is a time now more than ever uh, to continue to hit the streets, to continue to Absolutely. work in very practical ways to organize. Um, Concentrate on know, union uh, jobs, union struggles. You know, at, at Rutgers, um, you know, that, you know, right now, uh, unionization is having um, an important moment in rebirth at my university. You know, we had the largest public se sector strike uh, in the history of, of this state. And, um, you know, it was uh, a very difficult battle, but uh, 1,900 families are better off today because of what it is that we did together. And it took over 10 years to build the capacity to do this. It wasn't anything that happened overnight. Uh, and, you know, every, you know, if you find a perfect uh, organization or situation, um, it was my set of a church, once you find a perfect church, don't join it, you'll mess it up. Well, you know, that's the true, the truth for any kind of formation. But, um, you know, that there, there is a, a capacity that we have that we can use to, to build together. And I will say that part of how, um, I do think it's important. One of the ways, reasons that it's important to continue to talk about uh, racism and sexism is because when we have uh, organizational formations, uh, those things are part of the dynamics that come into play when we uh, when we relate with one another and when we when we organize and when we develop um, plans of action. And so, I join you in not uh, supporting essentialist understandings of race and gender. I don't think that we can develop any kind of meaningful politics in that way. At the same time, to understand how those, when and where those things, uh, you know, those manifestations of power come into play uh, remains important as well, particularly when we're doing our organizing. Absolutely. And I think well, my position is that we need to have, we don't need black politics. We need black working class and poor politics. There has to be a class politics that de demands for those purged of racism working multicultural racial, racial coalitions of class, poor and working class black people to do go into class you know, war with those goddamn class traders. But what do you do when you have working class organizations and you have people who don't believe that women should be leaders. No, that's that's particular. Right. So so the those are examples in in of how you have to be able to um you know see see things uh see a number of things at the same time, right? Absolutely leadership should be based on quality quali qualification, not gender. Not, you know. But I but I, I could tell you um that uh is very real. And even as you we try to do uh, whether with any organization I've been a part of, political organization, union work, anti-racist work, whatever, there's always uh, those elements are at play. And so we have to be mindful. We have to be mindful of it. I'm trying to look at the chat and see what's going on there. Okay. Mm -hmm. Welcome. Welcome. So, so, so this is so this is this is what um, 
my hope for this project was to be able to um, you know, provide a, a different lens for us to understand what's happening on the current political scene, to really trace the ways in which neoliberal politics have developed uh, in ways that have taken our eyes off of um, you know, structural inequality and placed it on very individualist understandings of the self um, and on the family and to, and to think about how those fantasies have played an important role, not only in terms of formal politics, but also uh, in terms of what it is that we, you know, we receive and ingest, um, you know, in, in terms of, uh, you know, culture, particularly in terms of television, in terms of movies, <coughs> um, you know, all of those kinds of things. So, you know, and to bring it to a, a you know, a, a legal frame as well, right? So some of my chapters deal with, um, you know, for example, sexual assault and, you know, how that takes shape, how how some people are not even seen as um, uh, victims because they're not positioned at, because we, we, we like to have these melodramatic ideas of having pure victors and pure villains. And the case that I look at with uh, Dominique Strauss-Kahn, uh, the a black woman that she uh, that he raped um, was um, was an immigrant, um, was a working class woman trying to make ends meet. Uh, you know, they the basically the uh, New York DA's office abandoned abandoned her, um, and really public opinion did too. Um, you know, you know at different points the the media was really positioning and you have to look at the details you know that I uh, you know that I have in terms of the the work but essentially I try to highlight the fact that um there are some people's pain that we don't want to pay attention to there are some kinds of things that we don't want to address and that we overlook and we don't see as being re relevant in terms of um uh, our politics and in terms of our legal um you know our our legal sensibilities and so that's something that that needs to be uh, paid attention to and it's part of what this moment is about right we look for um you know the question is really not you know is somebody a pure kind of uh, uh victim you know that's why when, in black lives matter uh, the cases people often want to look like look to you know folks you know were they selling something do they have did they have um were they selling marijuana do they have any you know kinks in their um, armor, so to speak. But the real question is, what is happening here? What's causing uh, this? Um, and to also, you know, as uh, uh, Cedric Johnson and others have pointed out, to to look at not only uh, the racial animus uh, that it involves, and it certainly does involve that, uh, and yet at the same time. Um, the kind of the the kind of shift, the neoliberal shift in terms of the support that we have for cities and state, and the ways in which uh, hyper policing and surveillance has become a source of revenue, particularly in the neoliberal right? age. Right. So we can't, you know, that. So so I think that you know, a, a part of what I wanted this work to do was to contribute to um, those other voices that are trying to underscore the ways in which neoliberalism has really um, infected and impacted how we see the world, the stories that we tell uh, or don't tell, and how we take our focus, you know, off of 
um, you know, thinking about the self, rehabilitating the self, and that really kind of uh, superficial understanding of life and, and understanding things in terms of how um, they manifest on macro level uh, levels of scale, how it, it's rooted in public policy, how it's rooted in um, economic um, relations that we have um, one with another. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, Dr. Floyd, we are at the end of our hour. We're over an hour, actually. That went. So I can't fast. believe it. That signs. That's a sign. That was a good show. Please tell us you'll be willing to come back and talk about some of your other subjects or other books. Absolutely, absolutely. It's been time, it's please, been a pleasure to be here. Please check out um, uh, Dr. Nicole Alexander Floyd's first appearance on This Is Revolution podcast. You can search on YouTube for uh, what is the revolutionary potential of the Christian Church. Was it Christian Church or Black Church? I think it was Christian Church. But um, mm, Christianity. Okay, I think okay. it was Christianity. But um, mm-hmm. thank you so much for joining us. And we are out. Okay. 